Church are Emmanuel Baptist. Is that not here at the Gold Country? Is this actually not on? Let me see. I'm Am I on? Can you hear me now? Is that better? Good. That's much better. I usually take a few minutes when I'm in a strange congregation to speak very slowly for the obvious reason that it will take you a little bit of time to tune into the frequency of my accent. I know that you all want to speak like me, but there are only a few of us who are so blessed I had the opportunity to meet Sinclair Ferguson this last week. I haven't met Sinclair ever in all my travels. The one Scottish preacher that I had wanted to meet, and uh, we had a little bit of fun uh, with our American brothers at their expense as we spoke in our dulcet Scottish accents that you all love to listen to. We're going to read this morning from John chapter 3. As you're turning there, let me just bring you the greetings of my congregation, Emmanuel Baptist Church. As you know, we are in the belly of the beast, right in the heart of the state capital of California, but we are preaching the gospel, and we're very thankful for God's grace to us and the opportunity to be a light in the state capital for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're very thankful for the fellowship that we enjoy, especially with your pastor Phil and with Corey and uh, and our pastors fraternal, but also in our sacramental gospel conference that we've enjoyed hosting up here in what was free America for a little while in comparison to the city. Um, We are looking forward to continuing that fellowship. We pray for you often. And we're grateful for the partnership that we have in the Lord. And so it's a joy to have Phil in our pulpit this morning down in Sacramento. And when he was let down by a preacher, he then called me up and said, could you preach? And I said, sure. Uh, I'm kind of coming back from a conference, so be careful. When a pastor comes back from a conference and he's been preached up and full, the danger is then he just lets go when he comes home, but hopefully the Lord will use our time in the Word. I want to read in John 3 this morning, a very familiar portion of the Word of God, and we are going to zoom in particularly on that very well-known verse, John 3:16. But let's read it in its context, and then we'll pray, and then we'll turn to consider this text. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning rejoicing that you are a God of grace and a God of mercy. You're a God who does not deal with us as our sins deserve. And we bless you for the Holy Scriptures that make us wise unto salvation. We thank you that here in your Word you reveal yourself to us as you reveal yourself in Jesus Christ, who is the Word become flesh. We pray now as we turn to your Word that you would come by your Spirit, that you would reveal your truth to us, that we might behold the truth as it is in Jesus, and that by believing in Him, we would enjoy true eternal life with you. Draw near to us, Lord, we ask. Come by your Spirit now and bless the preaching of your Word for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you were asked in one word, What is the Bible all about? I wonder what you would say. Boys and girls, if I was to ask you in one word, what is the Bible all about? What would you say? You might say, it's about God. And you'd be absolutely right. You might say, it's about salvation. And you'd be absolutely right. You might say, it's about Jesus Christ. And you would be absolutely right. The Word of God can be summarized in one word or two words, and then, of course, unpacked. But if I was to ask you to choose one text to summarize perhaps the message of the Bible, which one would you go to? Maybe some of you would take Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. That would be an interesting choice. Perhaps it would be, as you Americans say, Habakkuk, and as we Scotsmen say, Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith. But I would venture to say that many of you, if you're Christians and you've been Christians for a long time, many of you would probably go to what I think is the most famous verse in all of the Bible. The verse I want to draw your attention to this morning. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have 
eternal life. It's a verse that you will see sometimes on 99 when you're driving from Elk Grove, where I live, up into the city. There it is on a bridge, John 3, 16. It's a verse that you'll see when you watch the best sport in all the world, which is soccer. There it is behind the goals, John 3, 16. It's a verse that you might see in the most unusual of places. There was a, a huge barn in Northern Ireland that you would drive by, and the farmer had painted on the side of the barn in huge white letters, John 3, verse 16. It really does, in many ways, summarize for us the total message of the Word of God. That's why, boys and girls, it's a very good early verse to memorize, so that all the days of your life you will remember what sums up the Word of God. Now, John 3 is a well-known chapter to those of us who have been Christians for a long time. It speaks to us, of course, of our Lord's encounter with one of the Jewish leaders of His day, Nicodemus. It's interesting, isn't it, that Nicodemus comes to Jesus, the Bible says, by night. I think that indicates to us he was coming in secret. He didn't want anybody to see him. He wanted to get an opportunity to meet with Jesus without all the hassle of the, the Sanhedrin uh, speaking about Nicodemus coming to ask Jesus questions. So he comes at night, and he comes in secret, he engages our Lord, and our Lord speaks to him of the great blessing of grace, the new birth. He makes it clear to Nicodemus that we don't make ourselves Christians, that we become Christians by the grace of God through the work of the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven to make us alive to God, we who are born dead in our trespasses and sins. And our Lord Jesus, in this encounter with Nicodemus, declares to Nicodemus, the truth of John 3, verse 16. And I want to draw your attention to this text this morning and have you consider with me five truths that it teaches us about God. Now, remember that Nicodemus knew about God, that Nicodemus was a teacher in Israel who had understanding to a certain extent about God, but not sufficient understanding to truly know God in a saving way. That only comes when we encounter Christ, when we believe in Christ. Now, Nicodemus is encountering Christ in the flesh right before him in this meeting. Jesus is instructing Nicodemus further regarding God, and he does it with this famous, well-known verse that many of us have committed to our memory. And I want us to look at it this morning and consider then five truths that it teaches us about God. The first one I want you to see is quite straightforward, and maybe we might even not think about it immediately, is this, God exists. For God so loved the world. Jesus 
makes it clear to Nicodemus, I want to remind you again of the existence of God. I want to talk about God doing something, and therefore remind you, of course, that for God to do something means that God must be, that God must exist. And so, as we come to this text, we see very clearly the assumption of the text is that there is a God. Now, you say to me, well, that really is quite obvious. I might have missed that. But you know, and I know, the kind of day in which we're living, right? There was a time, perhaps, in the past where you could assume that most people would at least say, I believe in God in some shape or form. Now, you have to ask people, do you even believe there is a God? Our text asserts God exists. And we don't have to apologize for that as the people of God. We don't have to be sorry for saying to people, you believe in God. It might be as a young person that you can get nervous around people. Maybe you're at college, particularly our universities. Your professor is going to really enjoy mocking you if you turn up and say you believe in God. My own children have gone through college, and we had some very interesting discussions about this. Some professors were kind and respectful, but some really took pleasure in mocking those who would believe in God. You have to be prepared for that in our now progressive secular age. And we must assert without blushing, without being concerned about what the world thinks, there is a God. The God of the Bible is the true and the living God. God does exist. The one who made all things, the one who sustains all things by the very word of His power, and the one who ordains whatsoever comes to pass, the God of all providence, He is the God with whom we have to do. One God, three persons. Very interesting in our day that there's a great debate has been reignited regarding even the doctrine of God. I was reading last night for another situation, the 17th century England, during the English Civil War, there was a, a group known as Sicinians, and the Sicinians denied the Trinity, and they wrote catechisms, and they, they were very strong in mainland Europe, but their writings began to infiltrate the English church. And just as England went into its civil war in the 1640s, uh, the Sicinian error regarding the doctrine of God began to bear fruit. And, and God raised up one of the great Puritans, who was Oliver Cromwell's chaplain, John Owen, to spend time writing against the Sicinians and standing firm on the doctrine of the Trinity, that the doctrine of the Trinity would not be lost, and that error regarding God would not come in. You see, the reality for us is this. If we have the wrong God, we're doomed. We must have the right God, the true God, the living God, the God who exists, the God that Jesus Christ is the manifestation of and that Jesus Christ speaks of here. And that's why the ancient creeds and confessions of the church are really important for us to know and be aware of. Why? Because these things were hammered out in the first, second, third, fourth, fifth century, these great truths that we sing at Christmas, very God of very God, very light of light, we must know where they come from. They come from ancient creeds of 
Christians of bygone days who've hammered out the truths of God's Word. God exists. We must know this God. We must understand who this God is. God has revealed Himself to us in two particular ways. General revelation, and you folks have some really wonderful examples of it up here compared to Sacramento, and special revelation. General revelation is what we see outside, the sunshine, the stars, the moon, my favorite spot, Lake Tahoe. So, I drive up here and go up to my favorite spot, and I look at it, and I I marvel. God is declaring His glory. God is declaring His being. God is declaring His existence to us in general revelation. But general revelation is not enough to be to know God savingly. That's why we need special revelation. And here it is, our special revelation, the Word of God in which God reveals to us what? His Son, His Son, Jesus Christ, who, as we're going to see in our text, is the way of salvation. God exists. That's the first truth we discover in our text. For God so loved the world. The focus of our text is not on man, it's on God. And that's where the focus of our lives needs to be. That's where the focus of our hearts needs to be. Not on ourselves, but on our God. The true and the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The God who has made all things. The God who sustains all things. The God who is working out His purpose for His own glory. Brings us then to the second truth of our text. This God who exists is a God who loves. In fact, the Bible actually doesn't say God just loves. It says God is love. Now, here in our text, we are introduced then to the God who is love, and we're introduced to the love of God. John tells us here that our Lord declared that the God who exists so loved the world. He so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Now, let's stop for a moment and ponder this. Think about the love of God, because the love of God is both a vitally important and yet a peculiarly mysterious truth. It's vitally important because it tells us about what God is like, yet it is truly mysterious because of the way that it manifests itself in the world. Here our Lord is plainly telling us that God is love, and God loves the world. Now, for Nicodemus, this would have been a staggering statement. It's hard for us all these years later to comprehend how shocking it would be. Why do I say that? Because you've got to understand the Jewish mind in the first century. You've got to understand how the Jew thought in the first century. The Jew in the first century thought that the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God of the universe, he loved Israel. And everybody else were dogs. He loved Israel and the nations he did not love. And when Jesus says to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world, that would have exploded his worldview. That would have challenged him at a level 
that it's hard for us to comprehend. Maybe as a Scotsman, sometimes it would be that God loves Englishmen. But the reality is that we can't begin to understand the, the magnitude of this in the mind of Nicodemus. How can it be that the God who loves Israel also loves the world, the nations, staggering for, this, for Nicodemus's mind. But here, what our Lord is basically showing Nicodemus is the breadth of the love of God in regards to all the nations of the earth. He's informing us that God's love in God's redemptive purposes, we'll see in a moment, it extends beyond the context of merely the boundaries of national or ethnic Israel in the first century. And indeed, we have to realize it had always been for the whole world. It just so happens that God chose Israel for His redemptive purpose for a season so that Jesus Christ could come into the world. We must understand the place of Israel in the world in regard to the purpose of God. God's purpose has always been for the world, and Israel's had a special role in that. But God's purpose was always to be for the world. That's why God said to Abraham, your seed shall be a blessing to what? The nations. The nations. Now here Nicodemus hears these words, about the breadth of the love of God, and he's being informed of the, the love of God going beyond the boundaries of Israel into the whole world. Regarding the extent of the love of God, it's evident that Jesus is making it clear that God's love is far bigger than Nicodemus could understand. It's far bigger than we can understand. But there's also another aspect to this love that we need to consider, because regarding the love of God here, what do we see? We see that He so loved the world. Now, what world is He talking about? Well, He's talking about the fallen world. He's talking about the, the rebellious world of mankind. He's talking about the world that has turned away from God. He's talking about the world that is at enmity with God. He's talking about the world that, that hates God. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not, I don't have a lot of trouble loving people who love me. I mean, that's kind of, you know. But loving people who hate me, that's a whole different reality. That's a whole different level of love that is required. And what Nicodemus is being told here by Jesus, and what we're learning here in this text regarding the God who loves, is that this God, His love is for the unlovable. His love is for the hostile. His love is for the rebel. His love is for the bad. His love is for the wicked and the sinful. What we're seeing here in this text is our Savior telling us, that the love of God is a redemptive love. It's a redemptive love. What is in view here is the love, the redemptive love of God. And what makes it amazing is this. We're talking here about the holy God of heaven and earth loving the wicked, sinful rebels of mankind. That's why Paul writes that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We come into the world, you see, hating God. 
We come into the world having no desire to live for God, no desire to honor God, no desire to obey God, but rather for ourselves and to pursue our own ends. We, we live functionally as if there is no God. And even in that state, God has a love for us in Christ. And we see here in our text that the world, the world here then is loved by God. This rebellious, wicked, perverse, hateful world is loved by God. And Nicodemus's mind would have been blown by that, but listen, so should yours. So should yours. When you think of the holy God of heaven and earth and the wickedness of man and man in his rebellion, and you, you go to a text like this, you realize this God who exists, the holy God of heaven and earth, loves the world. It should stagger you. It should shock you. You should be going, wait a minute, how can this be? that that is true. But it is true. Because Jesus said it's true. And we need to embrace that. And we need to understand that. And we need to grasp that. That the holy God of heaven and earth loves this wicked, sinful world and those that are in it. It's amazing. It's ridiculous. It's scandalous. But it gets even more scandalous when you consider the third truth of, about God that you, do, you see in this text. Because this God who exists and this God who loves, He's a God who gives. He's a God who gives. And notice how He, how he gives. This God who exists loves and He gives His only Son. His only Son. Now, I don't like that translation. I think that's a bad translation in my ESV. I love my ESV Bible, but it doesn't get everything accurate at times in some of its translation. No English version gets it absolutely perfect, right? You've got to realize that. But that doesn't mean we can't trust our Bible. Of course, we just have to be honest about where sometimes the, the, the translation choice maybe isn't as good as it might be. I think that the old English version is better. The version I learned as a boy, that he gave his only begotten Son. Now, why do I say that to you? Because I think there's a doctrinal theological point here to be made regarding Jesus Christ. You see, the Son is the second person of the Godhead. And what we know about the Son with regards to His relationship with the Father and the Spirit is this that He is begotten of the Father. Now, you say to me, Pastor Briggs, can you explain to me what that means? And I would say this to you. The begottenness of Jesus, or the begottenness, sorry, of the Son, is not to be investigated because it's incomprehensible. But it is to be adored because it's absolutely wonderful. And at that point, I will do what John Calvin used to do with his students in Geneva when they came to a point of thinking about God that caused their minds to just go, I can't think anymore. 
bow down and worship. This is our God. You see, the Son who has come from the Father is the only begotten of the Father. And in being the only begotten of the Father who has come from the Father, who has been given by the Father, He comes to reveal to us the Father that we might be saved. And we need to understand this. John's gospel is all about Jesus Christ. Turn back for a minute to a text. I'm pretty sure you know this one as well. John 1.1. 1, 1. Turn back there just for a minute. This is your favorite Jehovah's Witness text. Right? They come to your door and you, hey, let's go here. Right? And you let them read it. And they read it and they think, oh, great, I've got a student. And you say, well, let's unpack it and see what it means. In the beginning was the Word. Now think about that. That's creation. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. Okay, so, so the Word was with God means that there's another person there. That's the Father. And the Word was God. So the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now there are two persons here. Yes, this is a Trinitarian text. This is revealing to us something about who God is in His being. And we see here then that it goes on. He was in the beginning with God. So we have the Father, and we have the Word. And the Word, John goes on and tells us in verse 14, became flesh. That's incarnation. That's God the Son entering the world through the womb of the Virgin Mary. That's God, the independent being of the universe, stepping into His creation. The Father gave the Son. The Son came from the Father. God manifest in the flesh in order for us to come to God. This is what's going on in the gospel. This is what's going on in the coming of Jesus. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the begotten Son of the Father, the only Son from the Father. You see, we have to understand something. There's an immeasurable chasm between the God who is and His creation. Immeasurable. You can't comprehend it. I can't comprehend it. God exists on a completely different plane from us. Yet God had made the world. And God is in His world. And God is for His world. And what God does in the Son is to appear in His world so that His world that has rebelled against Him might be reconciled to Him and be delivered from Him in His wrath. This is what's going on in the gospel. This is why it's so important. And so we see here that God has given His only begotten Son. And John, in his gospel, he introduces us to the Son of God, who is the Word. And through his whole gospel, what does he tell us? 
This one who has come, the Word, become flesh, he is God, manifest in human form, and he is the one of whom the Old Testament has promised would come. And how do we know he's God? Well, seven times he tells us he's the great I am in this one gospel. And then he does all these miracles, miracles that you and I can't do, only God could do. And what is it to tell us? It's to tell us what he tells us at the end of the gospel that all these things have been written, that you might believe that Jesus has come from the Father to reveal God to you, that you might be saved and know God. How amazing. How amazing. The Father is unbegotten. The, The Son is begotten and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. This is our God. This is the triune God of heaven and earth who who gives in the person of the Son. And so, God's redemptive love manifests itself in the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And now, think about that. Think about what Jesus Christ then has come and done. Because It's not just about God turning up. It's about God acting on our behalf to rescue us because of our predicament. What's our predicament? We're at enmity with God. We're rebels against God. We want nothing to do with God. So, God God takes the initiative. God acts on our behalf, in His Son. His redemptive love, you see, is a redemptive love that gives by way of incarnation. But more than that, humiliation. Think about it. The God who made absolutely everything becomes a creature. Here's how Wesley put it. God contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man. The God who fills all in all became a man in order to rescue man from God. That's what actually is happening in the gospel. That's what's happening in Jesus coming into the world. This covenant-making, covenant-keeping God in His sacrificial love gives His Son to be born of a little poor Jewish virgin in fulfillment of all his promises, so much so that the wise men turn up, right? So much so that the shepherds are curious. And then what has happened? This God who has come now as a baby grows up in wisdom and stature. Even by the age of 12, what do we discover? He knows more than the teachers. He had a great homeschool. (laughs) Your homeschool is nothing like that. Keep going, but in anything like Jesus is, right? Twelve years old, they were so astonished. His mom and dad lost him at the temple, had to come back and get him. Then one day he comes down, and there's John the Baptist, the chap from Placerville, up in the mountains, you know, dressed like a wild man, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. And what does Jesus do? This is God come in the flesh. He gets baptized. Yep, Jesus was a Baptist. He gets baptized by John the Baptist. And what does he say? 
I must be baptized that I might what? Fulfill all righteousness. What's he talking about? Fulfilling the law of God perfectly on behalf of all I've come to save. Why? Because they have broken it. And they are guilty. But I am going to become their guilt bearer through my death so that they might be pardoned. And what does he do? For three and a half years, he gathers a a motley crew of fishermen and tax collectors, and, and he tells them the truth regarding himself and how they might know God. And then after three and a half years, what happens? It's just as he predicted. He would go up to Jerusalem. He would be arrested. He would be tried, and he would be crucified. The religious establishment would get rid of him. The Romans would get rid of him. Ah, but what men meant for evil, God had ordained for good. And as Peter would preach on the day of Pentecost, even though wicked hands took you and took him and crucified him, God had foreordained that in his death life would be secured for all who believe in him. His humiliation of submitting himself to the law of God and the death of the cross gave way to what? Resurrection. We just thought about it last week, didn't we? Exaltation. And here you have it up here. I was looking at it this morning. He's risen. Ah, but that's not the end of the story, is it? What does he do between his rising and his reigning? He ascends back to heaven where he is now reigning and ruling. And what's going to happen? You're absolutely right. He will return. Hallelujah. What a Savior. The God who gives has given all that we need that we might be made right with Him. And so what do we discover here? We discover that this God who gives is not only a God who exists and a God who loves and a God who gives, but He's a God who calls. That's the fourth point to see in the text. Back to John 3. What does it say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Nicodemus was was no doubt struggling to understand what in the world is this teacher talking about? Born again? I'm born? How can I get born again? What does that even mean? He's not understanding the spiritual realities of the kingdom yet. But notice, how is it then that all the benefits and blessings of the redemption accomplished by Jesus and His life and death and resurrection become ours. How do they become ours? By believing in Him. And so, how is it that God calls? Well, God calls through the proclamation of His Word. As you're hearing it this morning, you are hearing the call of God. You are hearing the call of God to turn from your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In order to be right with God, it's not about doing a whole bunch of rules and regulations. You'll never be able to do all that would be needed to keep the law perfectly. And even if you did start now, what about all the bad stuff you've already done? You need someone to have bore the the, the punishment for that sin. Who is it? Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus deals with all of our sin problem, past, present, and future, through His life, death, and resurrection. And how do you gain the benefits of forgiveness for sin 
peace with God and eternal life. It's not by doing stuff. It's by trusting Jesus Christ. Believing that Jesus is who He is. Believing that Jesus has done what He's done. And giving your heart to Him fully as the only hope for the forgiveness of your sins and peace with God. And this morning, through this strange accent, God is calling you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, listen to me. The the greatest message you'll ever hear is the message of John 3.16. The love of God in His Son, calling you to believe in Him that you might be saved. You might be a boy or a girl here. Your mom and dad are Christians. You're not yet sure. You're not yet there. You say, well, I need to do this. I need to do that. Listen to me. You need to trust Jesus. That's it. It's not about being a good boy. That way you be getting saved by your moralism. It's not about being a good girl. Don't misunderstand me. Obey mom and dad. But listen, you don't get right with God by doing good. You get right with God by trusting the good that Jesus has done. Trusting the Jesus who has done what you need to have done for you that you could not do for yourself. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest any any should boast. And so here in our text, we see then that God is calling whosoever believes in Him. You say, well, well, I don't know. I mean, how, maybe, maybe he's not calling me. Are you part of the whosoever? I mean, it's anybody who believes. It doesn't matter about your ethnicity. It doesn't matter about your bank balance. It doesn't matter if you live up here or you live in the city. It doesn't matter if you've got a PhD or not. You know what matters? Are you a sinner? Is the wrath of God abiding upon your head? Are you heading for destruction? Are you hearing God in His Word call you to Christ? Then whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What a great message. What a great hope. What a great God that we have who has in His love sent His Son and who calls us now to believe in Him. You see, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It is impossible to receive the blessings that Christ has secured. That's why so many people miss it, you see. That's why so many people don't enjoy the blessings that Christ has secured, because they don't trust Him. Faith is the empty hand that takes the blessings of Christ by trusting and holding Christ. The Christ who has died, the Christ who has risen, the Christ who has ascended, the Christ who is reigning right now and watching over us, and the Christ who is coming back again. God calls whosoever believes in Him. That brings us to the last point. God saves. God saves. Notice, our text tells us that all who believe in Him, they should not perish but have everlasting life. This is very sobering for us to understand in our day. I've often wondered whatever happened to the doctrine of hell? It's a sober doctrine, isn't it? It's a serious doctrine. It's not the kind of doctrine that you go in on a a Monday morning to your work and say, hey, 
I'd just like to see how your weekend going. Can we talk about hell? I won't advise that. But here's the reality. Many of you have been in situations where the conversation has gone this way. So are you saying that if I die without Jesus, I am going to... And you've felt the... I have to say yes, because it's true. Because the Bible says there are only two possibilities at death, a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And it gives me no pleasure to tell you that this morning, but it is my calling to make it clear to you that it is true. Why? Because this is why Jesus came. You know, Jesus Christ came into the world from God to save man from God. Because, you see, your biggest fear today isn't whether you've lost your job or not, though that's a hard thing. Isn't whether your marriage is in trouble, though that's a deeply painful thing. It's not whether you've suddenly been told that you've got cancer, though that's a horrible thing to be told, right? You know what the thing that should fear you the most is? You're going to stand before God, your Creator, and you're going to give an account to Him for how you lived your life. And if you have believed in His Son and received the forgiveness of sins that He offers and been uh, clothed in the righteousness that He secured in His perfect life, you're going to enter in to eternal rest and glory. But if you have not believed in Christ and not had your sins forgiven and not been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, then you're going to have to pay for it yourself. And that means eternal punishment. That means you go to the lake of fire where the Bible tells us you will suffer the wrath of God forever. That's why this text is so important because it tells us God saves. God saves. What does God do? God pardons and reconciles and delivers all who believe in His Son so that they don't go to hell and perish. You see, it's so important to understand that in the gospel, God is calling us to be rescued. But more than that, God is rescuing us through His Son because it is God who has sent His Son, and it is God who gives us His Spirit, and it is God who pardons us, and it is God who reconciles us. We don't do that for ourselves. We receive all of that when we simply trust in Jesus. And God this morning, through His Word, is saying to you, I am the God who saves. I am the God who saves. And I want to tell you that this morning. I want to make it clear to you this morning. God, by way of the sending of His Son into the world, is saying to you, I will save you. Trust Him. I will save you. Trust Him. You don't have to do anything yourself. You have to trust in the one that has done everything that you need. My Son, Jesus Christ. There's no grounds, you see, for boasting when it comes to salvation. There are many of us here who are Christians And there's none of us can say, I'm saved because I did this. I'm saved because I... No, no. You're saved because of God in Christ reconciling you to Himself. And that's why God gets all the glory, as it should be, 
And we just bless his name that he's counted us in his people. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you're a Christian, have confidence in the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Don't be afraid to tell people the truth about Jesus. Do it graciously. Do it kindly. Do it sweetly. Sometimes it's going to be sober when you get to the hard parts of the gospel message. But have confidence that as you speak the truth of Jesus to a lost soul, that the God who sent him into the world is now by the power of the Spirit able to bring that soul that is dead alive and bind it to his Son. You can't save anyone, but you can tell them about Jesus. You can tell them the good news. You can unpack five truths about God from John 3.16 and maybe tell them it even better than I've told you it this morning. But if you're an unbeliever here this morning, I want to just say to you, there is hope in this dark world for your needy soul. There is hope in your sorrow. There is hope in your sadness. There is hope in your difficulties. There is hope in your suffering. Not to make your life better necessarily, because Jesus doesn't promise you that. I always say to people, come to Jesus with all your problems. He'll just give you a whole different set. But here's what you can be sure of if you trust in Jesus this morning. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll have peace with your Creator. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you'll have a guarantee of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but those things are far, far superior to any other temporal blessing that you might receive in this life. And as Christians and as churches, we need to have confidence in this dying culture that we in Jesus Christ and the message of Jesus Christ have the message of eternal life, and we need to take it to the highways and the byways, to the alleys and the, and the, the, the citadels of our country. Why? Because it's only in Jesus Christ that anyone can be made right with God. It's only in Jesus Christ that any of us can be saved. When it comes to this text, it is indeed the gospel, as someone has said, in a nutshell. It's the gospel in a nutshell. Five truths about God that are important for us to understand and live in the light of. God exists. God loves. God gives. God calls. God saves. And it's all to the praise and the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we bless you this morning for such a great revelation in your word regarding your Son. How amazing it is, Father, that we can bless you and praise you here on the earth as your creatures, because you have redeemed us through Jesus Christ as we trust in him. Father, we do pray that all of us this morning would dwell upon and think upon and meditate upon the great truths that are contained in this text that we all know very well, John 3.16. We pray for those of us who are believers that we will have full confidence in the gospel, full confidence in Jesus Christ, full confidence in your power to save through your Son. We pray for any in our gathering who this morning are wrestling in their soul regarding a relationship with you through your Son. Father, 
Bring them by the power of your Spirit to not only believe that you exist, but to know that you love and to know that you have given and to know that you are calling and to know that you save. Only through believing in Jesus Christ. For we ask it in His name. Amen.